Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the ground and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. His heart is hard as flint. He's selfish and self-reliant and cold, and his hands are tight-fisted and grasping and clutching his money. Scrooge is rightly called a covetous old sinner. It's precisely this type of heart and hand that we are warned against in our passage today. Yet old Scrooge had a new beginning. It's New Year's Day today. It is a time of new beginnings. It's a time we associate with a fresh start, with refreshment, and that too is going to be a central theme in our text today, this, this theme of having a new beginning. But I want to remind us that it is Christ who makes us new. Amen? It's through faith that we are forgiven for our sins that we become a new creation in Jesus Christ, and by His strength we walk in newness of life. So turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 15, verses 1 through 18. That's our text for today. And the message for us is this, open wide your heart and hand to your brother and the poor and needy. Give freely and liberally to the poor and needy, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, this chapter is dominated by the theme of release. We're going to see this word release five times in the first four verses of this section of Scripture. And even though the word only comes up one more time in the rest of the passage, the theme, the concept of release runs all the way through our text. We're going to see the release of debts, verses 1 through 6, the release of resources, verses 7 through 11, and the release of debt servants in verses 12 through 18. We're going to look at all three of those today. So first, the release of debts and forgiving loans to your poor brother. We see this in verses 1 through 6. Look again at verses 1 and 2. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. So every seventh year, all loans to a fellow Israelite to be, were to be canceled, to be released. The debt was released. And when we hear this with our modern ears, it bothers us, doesn't it? I mean, I, mean, I think the Israelites need a little Dave Ramsey to get them back on track, don't you think? I mean, why can't they just work and, and, and pay it off. Uh, we need to understand that their times were far different than our own. Theirs was not a cash economy like ours. Theirs was a subsistence economy. If they experienced a drought or a storm or blight or disease and they had crop failure or their flocks and herds, uh, they suffered loss, they would need a loan to survive to provide for their family. The, the year of release is a provision to care for the poor and prevent permanent indebtedness and servitude. It's to help people get back on their feet, have a fresh start, so they didn't stay in this cycle of poverty forever. Uh, verse 3 says, Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. So loans to foreigners were treated differently than those made to a brother in the Lord. And this highlights the rena relational nature of this law. And the, the priority given to those members of the household of God. And God's people were to take care of each other, showing mercy to a brother in need. And then in verses 4 through 6, Moses says this, 
but there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. So verses four through six are giving us the ideal. There will be no poor among you, that is, among God's people, if, if they strictly obey all that the Lord commanded. The Lord will bless them, and they'll have no poor because of the Lord's blessing on them. And now we see something of a fulfillment of this in the book of Acts in the early church. Luke says there was not a needy person among them, Acts 4, 34. They gave to each other as uh, any had need. Now, of course, we know that Israel sinned greatly. They did not carefully or strictly obey all of God's commands, which is why in verse 11, Moses says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. So verse 4 gives us the ideal, but verse 11 gives us the real, the realistic picture of things. So long as there is sin and the world remains fallen, there will be poor and needy people. So long as there are some who are strong and others weak, so long as some are wise and others foolish, some lazy and others diligent, some healthy and others sick, some prudent and others imprudent, as long as we feel the effects of other people's sinful choices and in a fallen world, we suffer disasters beyond our control. There's going to be some rich and some poor. And no political or economic system can eliminate poverty unless it eliminates sin. As long as the world remains fallen and human nature remains sinful, then inequality cannot be prevented. I want to share a hypothetical illustration adapted from J.C. Ryle. If you took all the wealth and property in America by force today and you divided it equally between all the adults in the nation, in 50 years, we would be right back where we started. We'd find things just as unequal as before. Why? Because some would have worked and others been lazy. Some would have been self-indulgent or scheming. Others would have saved and invested. And in the end, there would be some rich and others poor. To solve inequality, you have to cast sin out of the world. So you have to beware of any who say equality of outcome and universal happiness can be achieved by a certain method of government or form of education or political party. Yes, have mercy to all. Do all that you can to help the, the poor. Support every worthy uh, work to raise people out of poverty and get them on their feet. Promote godly education. Promote godly public policy. But never forget, you live in a fallen world, and so there will never cease to be poor. We cannot eliminate poverty. So do we give up? Do we do nothing? No. Just because we can't do everything doesn't mean that we do nothing. God does not call us to solve world hunger, but to feed some. We cannot meet everyone's needs ourselves, but we can meet some. We will always have poor, the poor. The question is, what can I do? What's my part? Do that. God gives us the ideal to strive for, even though we're not going to attain it on this side of heaven. Now, there's a repeated promise of blessing that I want you to notice in our passage. We see it in verse 6 and verse 10 and verse 18. Again, at the end of each section, there's a, a promise of blessing for obedience. Following God's ways brings God's blessing. We've seen that again and again through the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I want you to 
remember that this is not, that this blessing from God is not so that you can have more for yourself. God blesses you so that you can be a blessing to other people. He entrusts his resources to you so that you can build his kingdom, not your own kingdom. But I want you to notice the principle in verse 6 is that nations that obey God will be blessed. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, Psalm 33, 12. And the blessing in verse 6 is being in a position to lend to other nations and not having to borrow from them. A, A large portion of our national debt is owed to other nations. Japan, China, and the UK are the top three. Borrowing makes us beholden to them. There's a connection in verse 6 between borrowing and being ruled. The borrower is the slave of the lender, it says in Proverbs 22.7. So obedience to God brings his blessing, not just for individuals, but for nations. The health of a nation, then, is connected to the morality of its people, specifically biblical morality, obedience to the truth that God has laid down in his word. This means that the restoration of our nation must come and will only come through more people coming to Christ and living in submission to him. This means that the best thing that we can do for our nation is to make disciples and to teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us, Matthew 28. This is our primary mission and our strategy as God's people for shaping the culture. Now, so long as there's sin, there's always going to be poor in the land, and therefore we'll always have opportunity for generosity. And that leads us to point two, the release of resources and giving freely to your brother. We see this in verses 7 through 11. After this law on releasing debts, Moses is now going to address poverty in general, and he's going to address the obvious practical concern. If I lend close to the year of release, then I'm not going to get my money back. I'm not going to be repaid. And God warns against this kind of unworthy thought, this kind of unworthy thinking among his people, leading you to give nothing. A law that was meant to be for the relief of the poor actually becomes a reason to neglect them. Now, as I read this next section of scripture, I want you to pay attention to two things. I want you to pay attention to the relational Uh, language and the responsibility that you're going to see. Pay attention to how many times Moses uses the word you and your. The second thing I want you to watch for is this contrast between hearts and hands. There's hearts and hands. There's two different kinds that are contrasted. Pay attention as I read these verses again. So look at verses 7 through 11. If any among you One of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, well, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your brother and you give him nothing and you cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. So, God commands the releasing of debts in the seventh year 
And now God commands the releasing of their resources. Look at verse 10. You shall give freely to your brother. Verse 11, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the poor, to the needy in the land. And I want you to note the contrast here. A hard heart leads to a tight fist like Scrooge clutching your resources. But a soft, compassionate heart leads to an open hand releasing your resources. So don't harden your heart and shut your hand. Have compassion and open your hand. Guard against this selfish thought. Well, I'm not going to get this back. Guard against that thought. True, you may not. Lending in the sixth year was basically like giving a gift because there may not be time to repay it. Yes, loving your brother may be costly. Nevertheless, this is exactly what God is asking. Give without thought of repayment. Lend sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse 8, give to meet their needs, not their wants. Now, I want you to notice also this strong relational language. He says, your brother, four times. These are your brothers in the household of God. Look after one another. They're not statistics. These are people that you know, that you have relationship with. They live in your towns, in your lands, three times. And knowing them is how you learn how best to help them in each person's situation. There's also this strong emphasis on taking responsibility. Look at the text. He says, you shall open your hand, your heart, your brother, your towns, your land. He uses the word your 17 times in five verses. It's hard to escape the sense that this is your responsibility, personal responsibility. And there are four primary jurisdictions in the scriptures, the individual, the family, the church, and the government. Which jurisdiction is responsible for taking care of the poor? Well, the first line of defense is the individual working for a living. The Bible says, if anyone will not work, he shall not eat, 2 Thessalonians 3.11. But what if a person can't work for some reason, or they're working and they still need help? The second line of defense is the family. The Bible says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, 1 Timothy 5.8. But what if a whole family is in need or there is no family? The third line of defense is the church. The people of God come alongside their brothers and sisters in the faith, meeting their needs. And that's the focus of our text today. It's not the government's job. God puts the responsibility in the hands of individuals, family, and the people of God. Now, the New Testament has the same priority of, of helping God's uh, people, the brothers and sisters in Christ. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially, especially to those who are of the household of God, Galatians 6, 10. But what is unique about this kinship, this family relationship in the New Testament in Christ is that it crosses all boundaries. It's for everyone who's in Christ. It's for Jew and Gentile and rich and poor and slave and free. And that connection, that kinship, that family relationship in Christ, in the household of God, it undermines and destroys all those distinctions, which will be important later on. So we are to guard against this miserly mentality, this cold heart leading us to clutch our resources with a tight hand, a fist, and do nothing, verse 9. Instead, we are to open wide our hand and release our resources. I want you to think of 
of the rich man and Lazarus, which we read a moment ago. The rich man has, has fine clothes, and he feasted daily, and sitting at his gate is a poor man named Lazarus who longed just to be fed from the crumbs of this rich man's table. Both of them die. Lazarus finds mercy in heaven, and the rich man finds misery in hell. The point is not that all rich men are evil and unbelieving, but this one was. How do we know? We're not told about any great or flagrant sin. The evidence is not what the rich man did, but what he left undone. Lazarus was at his gate daily, and he left him alone. Jesus said, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't feed me. And then these people turned to Jesus like, when? When did we see you? And, and he said, whatever you did not do for one of the least of, of these, you didn't do for me. Matthew 25, verses 41 to 46. Just like the, the rich man, the charge against these, these people in this, uh, when Jesus is speaking here, turns on the fact that they did not do certain things. The point is, is that sins of omission, failing to do something, can ruin our souls. The rich man had an obligation to Lazarus sitting at his gate. It's not enough for us just to not hurt people. We have to actively seek to help other people. The great sin here is the sin of omission. It's just like verse 9 in our text today. It's the sin of doing nothing. So take responsibility and act. I don't think there's ever been a time in history where we are more in need of a warning against selfishness than in our day in America. We have such abundance, so many resources, such comfort, so many good things. And that means we have a greater responsibility to steward those things, to steward what God has given us faithfully to help the less fortunate. There's only one remedy for selfishness, and it's not the fear of hell or the hope of heaven or a sense of duty. That's not going to fix your heart problem. It's knowing Christ's redeeming love for you. It's a new heart in Christ. When you turn away from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, trusting his atoning sacrifice to save you, he forgives you, he makes you new, he gives you a, a, a wholeness. It's knowing the greatness of your debt to Christ and the greatness of Christ's love for you that will break a selfish heart. Then your heart will be soft and your hands will be open and nothing will be too costly to give to the one who has so freely and fully given himself to you. In short, the only remedy for love of self is a believing grasp of the love of Christ. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let's not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 1 John three sixteen through 18. We love because he first loved us. Amen? 
And love is costly, just like his. Amen? And we love in action, not just in our words. Otherwise, how can we say that God's love is truly in us? Helping the poor has always been and always set Christians apart. It's shown the world that we live as Christians by a totally different set of values. And it, be, it can be challenging. Years ago, I remember I was driving down Butterfield, and I saw this guy walking on the side of the road. And this guy, he, he had mismatched clothing on. He had a long beard, and his hair was all disheveled and unkempt. And he, he was like walking real slow, and he was hunched over, and he was pulling the suitcase. And he was headed towards the BP gas station. I was like, I think this guy's homeless. So, and I was so convicted to help him, I pulled into the gas station and waited for him to come over, and I'm, as I'm waiting, I'm just all nervous, and my heart is racing. And as he, when he gets close enough, I was like, "Hey, you know, is there anything I can do to help you? Do you need a ride? Can I, can I help you in any way?" And he's like, "No, man, I'm, I'm on my way home from work." <laughs> like, like awkward. <laughs> I mean, like. Not homeless, not poor, not, <laughs> did not need my help at all, okay? Or I remember another situation at, at, at GFC early. There was a woman who was coming to our church. She had been coming for several weeks, and, and she was in need. She had a significant need. She had this um, disaster in her life, long story, but she needed furnishing for, for an entire apartment, and she asked if we could help. And so the, the church rallied, and we got all this furniture and all the things that she needed for her apartment. We loaded it up in a, in a U-Haul. We brought it to the address she gave us. And I got this phone call while I'm at work, and they're like, uh, Michael, sh- like no one's here. I'm like, what? Long story, like the need disappeared, the woman disappeared, like it all fell through, the whole thing fell apart. We had to take all the stuff that we gathered to like a donation center. Helping people is messy. <laughs> it's, it can be awkward. I mean, we, we have so many thoughts about helping the poor. We're worried about enabling someone who could be working. We're, we're worried about enabling someone who, who might be uh, struggling with substance abuse. It's awkward, it's difficult, it's messy, but at the end of the day, we have to do what we can to help the poor. And maybe that means you keep a few McDonald's gift cards in your car so that when you see the guy on the side of the road who you don't want to enable, you can at least give that person a meal. And it certainly means giving to reputable organizations that are trustworthy in the work that they do. And it means donating your time as well. As long as we don't do nothing, giving priority to Christians and particularly in nations where poverty is the greatest. Around the world, poverty is far more significant than it is here in our own country. Martin Luther, who was known for his generosity, he once said, God divided the hand into fingers so that money would slip through. As Moses said, open wide your hand. Give freely and generously as you have opportunity. You, got, you can't keep your money forever, and you're going to give an account one day for how you invested it, so invest it with an eye on eternity. We're only here for a short time, so how can you do the most good with the resources that God has given you while you're here? Third, we see the release of debt servants and giving a fresh start to your brother. We see this in verses 12 through 18. 
So Moses gave the law of the year of release of debts. Then he talked about releasing your resources. And now he, he talks about uh, extending this principle, this law, in this other law to releasing those who have become slaves because of debt and poverty. This is not the kind of slavery that we think of that took place in America, the chattel slavery. This is like indentured servitude. This is someone who's working off a debt over a period of years. Now, if a person's situation got bad enough, they couldn't provide for themselves, let alone pay their debt, they would sometimes sell themselves into debt servitude. Given the choice, servitude is better than starvation. So they would trade their labor for provision and to pay for their debts. I want you to notice the dignity of people is being maintained here because work and provision are still going together. But there is a limit to this as well. In this case, six years. Look at verse 12. If your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, sells himself to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. Now, this, this is six years from the time that he started serving you. This is not like on a cycle, like the year of release. So six years, and then he gets to go free. But, but the idea of restoration is the same. Look at verse 13. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally, not sparingly, liberally, out of your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press, as the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. Why? Why is the law not just to simply set him free, but also to furnish them liberally? This was to give them a fresh start, to help them get back on their feet so that they didn't fall right back into poverty. And again, they're to give freely and generously out of concern for the poor brother. See, release is only an act of love if they had some hope of success at getting a living for themselves. Again, you see this first jurisdiction, the individual working to provide for themselves. Our goal in caring for the poor is to give them the assistance they need in any number of different ways in order to get them on their feet and out of poverty. Continually subsidizing the poor with welfare so they never move out of poverty is wrong. We should be careful also about lumping the poor together as one group and treating them all the same way. They're not all poor for the same reasons. Some are poor because of natural disasters or circumstances beyond their control. Others because of exploitation or the sinful choices and actions of other people. Some because of laziness. Others because of self-indulgence. Others because of a lack of knowledge or skills. We don't help them all the same way. Just like we don't have a category called the sick and try to cure every sickness with the same medicine. In pharmacy school, we had a joke that Robitussin could cure anything. That was our joke. So like, you have a headache? Robitussin. You struggle with acne? Robitussin. You break your arm? Let's rub a little Robitussin on it. Robitussin. Oh, it's silly, right? It's, it's silly to think that you can give all sick people the same medicine and expect them to recover. It's silly also to use one remedy for poverty. Obviously, we should not subsidize the, the irresponsible or self-indulgent. They need incentives to help them change, to work, and be responsible. So we have to help the poor thoughtfully and carefully based on the causes and cures needed in their situation. 
But how do we know how best to help them? We go back to this relational aspect, right? You have to know these people. These are people you know. That's one way that you know how best to help them. Otherwise, you have to lean on, on trustworthy, wise, reputable organizations who know these people and know how best to help them. And again, the goal is to get them on their feet. Now, what's the motivation for all of this? Yes, it's because they're uh, brothers in the Lord. And yes, because there's blessings for obedience. But ultimately, the motivation is verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. I command you this today. There's a gospel logic here. Again, look, we love others because God first loved us. This law is motivated because of their experience in, enslaved in Egypt. And God came in and rescued them from that. And when he brought them out, he gave them abundant provision as he did so. You, Moses essentially saying, you know what it's like to be oppressed, to be treated harshly, to have no rest, no rights, no hope. Do not treat other people this way. In short... They should imitate God, not Pharaoh. Pharaoh was hard-hearted and grasping. He wouldn't let them go. God rescued them and provided for them abundantly. You should imitate God, not Pharaoh. If they obeyed just this one principle, it would undermine all forms of chattel slavery. Now, there's an exception here. Some people would be treated so well that they, wouldn't, they would want to stay with the family that they were serving. Look at verse 16. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because, because he loves you and your household, since he's well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever, and you do the same for females. Uh, this ritual is a, a symbol showing that they're attached to your household, your family, forever. But I want you to notice what this implies. This meant, this, this law was meant as a merciful provision. It, it means that this arrangement should be so marked by love of neighbor that there's going to be some people at the end of six years who will say, I love you. I love your family. You've treated me so well. I want to stay with you. But no, this is their choice, of course. It's their choice. And if they choose to go, verse 18, it shall not seem hard to you when you let them go free from you. For at half the cost of a hired servant, he served you for six years, so the Lord your God will bless you in all you do. Again, God does another heart check. He reminds them that you've profited from their labor and you should not be grudging in sending them away with liberal generosity. Now, perhaps choosing debt servitude seems strange and is hard to understand, but I think that there are two things that help mitigate our initial surprise. First, they choose this because it's a better situation than being on their own. It offers greater security, stability, provision, and quality of life for them to stay rather than go. And second, this is not the kind of chattel slavery that existed in Rome or America or most other places in history. And this raises a question for us. Does the Bible approve of slavery? No, at least not the kind that we think of. And I want to take a few minutes and, and equip you on the subject of slavery so that you can be grounded in the truth. You can know how to respond if this subject is raised because it's a difficult subject for us. It's difficult for us. It's difficult to understand 
this because it's hard for us to read the word slave and not think of all the familiar historical examples. We automatically impose all that meaning on the word. But this is long before any of that happened, and so we have to try to to remove all that historical view if we're going to read this rightly. The word ebed could uh, could, could describe forms of servitude that were morally wrong, like the Israelite slavery in Egypt. The word can be translated servant or slave, but that word could also be used to describe morally acceptable forms of servitude, like being a servant of a king or a servant of God or an indentured servant or even a permanent servant. And it's these last two categories where Ebed is sometimes translated as slave. And that can be misleading because we automatically think of the kind of chattel slavery that happened in Egypt and Rome or more recently in the United States. But that kind of slavery was forbidden in Israel. There are several critical differences from what we think of slavery. So in Old Testament um, Israel, slaves were to be treated as hired workers with dignity and care. Leviticus 25.53, and they had to write to food and clothing, Exodus 21.10. They were given rest every Sabbath. They participated in the festivals and the feasts, Deuteronomy 5 and Deuteronomy 16. They could be more highly educated than their masters. They often held places of honor in, in the family, important places in the family. They weren't dehumanized as inferior, but treated humanely because of their shared humanity as God's image bearers. Job 31, verses 13 through 15. The Bible teaches that all people are made in God's image, and therefore all are equally worthy of value, dignity, respect, and so on. They have equal worth. They had legal rights and redress. They had access to the city gates to mount a legal case. The Old Testament had strict laws for sexual protection. And for ki- as for kidnapping and selling people into slavery, that was forbidden. That was a capital offense. You could be put to death for that. Deuteronomy 24-7, Exodus 21-16. The harsh and ruthless treatment that Israel experienced in Egypt was strictly forbidden. Leviticus 25, 43, 46, 53. Slaves were not put in chains. They were not abused. If they were abused, the law forbid that. If they were abused, they had to go free. So for example, if a master knocked out the tooth of a servant, they had to let them go free, Exodus 21, 26 and 27. The law commanded protection for escaped slaves, Deuteronomy 23, 15 through 16. All of this is very different than Roman and American slavery in which slaves did not have legal protections. They were not chained, tortured, or abused with impunity like they were in Egypt. Slavery in Egypt was involuntary, it was endless, it was dehumanizing, Pharaoh was harsh and ruthless, and Moses is pointing them back to that, and he says, you will not do to others what was done to you. The Old Testament law did not allow it. What about the New Testament? First, Christians could not simply change the legal system in the Roman Empire, and telling slaves to rebel would only get them killed. Second, the command to love your neighbor as yourself, as Christ loved us. If that one command was actually put into practice, it would end all of it. Third, the family relationship, like we talked about, this unity among Christians undermined both the ethnic and the social uh, boundaries that were established by the Romans. Fourth, Ephesians 6, 9 and Colossians 4, 1 teaches masters to treat 
their servants as they would treat themselves. How do you want to be treated? Do exactly that to your servants. He says, don't threaten, let alone abuse them. And he says that God shows no partiality. God doesn't favor masters. There is no one who's inferior. Fifth, the Christian slogan was that Jesus is Lord. He's the king. And that truth relativizes all other claims to be the boss in any sphere of authority, whether that's the government, the church, the family, society, and so forth. So the church was radically different from the world around them. In the eyes of the Romans, a person could be a master or a slave, but in the church, they were just brothers in the Lord with one Lord over them both. Sixth, in 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul gives a list of ungodly sinners and he puts enslavers with murderers and the sexually immoral and liars and so forth. The point is enslavers are considered wicked. Slavery is evil, just like these other sins. And finally, there's the, the case of slavery from the book of Philemon. I wish we could unpack this little letter. Essentially, Paul urges Philemon to free his slave Onesimus and to receive him back no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, a beloved brother. He makes a strong appeal through the letter to set his brother free. See, Paul understood that the way that you overcome evil is by transformed lives. The power of the gospel is not just about a status change so that you get to go to heaven. It gives us a new heart. It transforms the way we live in every area of life. So while they couldn't immediately change the Roman uh, system and abolish slavery, what they could do is start a new society, a new culture, a new citizenship, a new people called Christians with their own rules where there was no slavery and everyone was a servant of the Lord Jesus, a society that could exist within the empire and change it from within. Historically, this is what happened and has happened wherever Christianity has spread. Jesus is the fulfillment of the year of release and the jubilee year. This idea of being released, especially the jubilee, it's picked up by the, by the prophets and it's applied to the Messiah, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 61. And Jesus picks up and he reads that passage from the scroll in Isaiah saying this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, Luke 4, 17 to 21. This Sabbath year of release and the jubilee, they were a foreshadowing of this of the spiritual freedom that Christ was going to bring, the release from sin and death and hell and all of sin's consequences. That freedom from sin and its effects are to be worked out in the lives of his people, the community of faith, the church. So yeah, we pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we work toward that, though we know it'll always be imperfect this side of heaven. But we also know that there is a day coming when the release, when that restoration will be complete. The restoration of all things will be complete. And we say, amen, 
Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And God, I just ask and pray that you would work by the power of your spirit to put it into practice in our lives. Lord, I pray against any unworthy thoughts that we have in our hearts that would lead us to close our hearts to those in need around us. We pray and ask God that you would move in our hearts to be open, open hearts, open hands, Lord Jesus. Ask and pray, God, that you would do this work in our hearts, that we would be faithful before you as your people. God, we ask and pray that that our church, our community would be marked by this kind of love and that we would stand out as different from the world around us. Lord, we want to shine as lights in this world, and so we ask and we pray for that, Lord. We pray, Jesus, for your help to make disciples of the people around us, Lord Jesus, that they might know your love and be transformed and have the hope of heaven as well. We ask and pray all these things, Jesus, in your name. And all God's people said, amen.